Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter podcast. In this podcast, I'm talking with Erica Commissar, who is a New York psychoanalyst. I managed to nap her while she was in the UK, which I was delighted about. And she's also works as a parent coach and an author. She's written a brilliant book called Being There, Why Prioritising Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, which is apparently quite a fundamental concept and a massive surprise to many policymakers around the world that it does actually matter whether mothers are there in the first three years. Anyway, moving on from my cynicism, she's also working on a book on adolescence and uh, we have a delightful time discussing anxiety in adolescence and uh, how that manifests itself what we can do about it. Um, At one point, you might hear an ominous sound of um, something, some liquid being poured. That's just me pouring a coffee in front of the microphone. And uh, as she started talking, I had a great sense that I should immediately grab a paper, some paper and a pen and start writing everything down, taking notes. But then I realised that actually I could just listen to the podcast again, which I've been um, really pleased to do as I've been editing it. So I hope you really enjoyed the podcast. Erica, well, thank you so much for making time to meet with me again today. And today we're going to talk about anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a massive topic. And I, I wondered if we could start by, is there a definition of anxiety? What is anxiety? Well, I mean, anxiety is what we call the hypervigilance of a part of the brain, um, with the threat sensing part of the brain. So in very young children, um, there's a very small almond-shaped part of the brain called the amygdala which is the threat sensing or stress regulating part of the brain. And it, we're born with it, but it's very diminutive. It's a very small, inactive part of our brain. Um, and as we grow um, as children, very young children, it grows with us, it enlarges and becomes more active as threats become more apparent, right? And the idea is that in the first year, babies are supposed to remain very close to their mother's bodies. and Stress is meant to remain um, an insignificant part of their lives. And uh, that part of the brain is meant to remain very quiet. And I think what's happening today is that we are turning on the part of the brain that experiences stress too early. And that part of the brain then enlarges at a very young age. And when it enlarges so early, uh, almost precocious development of the stress-regulating parts of our brain, it keeps growing and growing uh, and becoming more active until it kind of like a light bulb in the kitchen that you leave on and, um, and eventually that light bulb burns out. And so it basically shrivels in size. And I mean, we actually want the amygdala to be functional. We don't want it to shrivel up. We want it to be a functional part. We don't want it to be too big, sort of like three little bears. We don't want it to be too big. We don't want it to be too little. We want it to be just right. And what happens is it gets too large and then it shrivels up. And when it shrivels up, it's very hard to reclaim it. It's very hard to regenerate it. And then it's not functional. Um, And so what's happening is that children are becoming too alerted to stress too early. That part of the brain is becoming too overly active too early. And then the parts of our brain that regulate stress and cope with um, adversity going forward are not functioning for us. And it produces things like anxiety, hyperactivity. So we say the amygdala is responsible for, it's related to the fight or flight response in human beings, which is our, our reaction to threat, right? So we, in the old days, if a predator was chasing you, 
you either fought the predator or you ran. So what we're seeing is increased aggression related to anxiety and increased uh, lack of focus or distractibility or um, things like ADHD symptoms, which are related to anxiety. Um, so yeah, anxiety is kind of hypervigilance to the brain. Um, it's like the brain on stress is the way I would describe it. So if the amygdala is um, shriveled up, what takes over the role of the amygdala? What's the body look to to regulate stress? Well, that's the problem. Um, so, so the amygdala is part of what's called the limbic system of the brain. Um, we also have something called the prefrontal cortex, which is really what we call the emotion regulating part of the brain. And the two are meant to work together. So the, the emotion regulating part of the brain is meant to work in sync with the amygdala. And um, what's happening is that the system is all off. I mean, to, to put it simply, the system breaks down and ceases to function. Um, so what we really do uh, with patients in therapy and what therapy is shown to do, whether it's with children or adolescents or adults, and now we can see this with um, technology. We have something called fMRIs, functional magnetic resonance machines, which actually allow us not just to see the brain as we used to be able to in structural magnetic resonance machines where we could just see the brain, right? It was like a picture. Now we actually can see the brain in action as it's responding to the environment. Um, and what we know is that, um, you know, through all this technology that, that um, stress really impacts the brain in a very negative way. But we also know that therapy can... Um, rejuvenate a certain parts of the brain. Um, and the prefrontal cortex actually becomes more active and grows. And even some of the therapy has been successful in helping to kind of um, help the amygdala to heal to a certain extent. Um, it never fully uh, can heal if you've gotten so far into adversity. So we know from like PTSD and these kinds of disorders that we can get so far into a stressful state that it's very hard to come back from that state. Mm -hmm. but, but therapy actually has been shown to grow the parts of the brain that, um, that have had developmental, um, you'd say, developmental issues. So, yeah. What, um, can you say what's happening in therapy in the brain? What's it making the brain do that's helping? So okay. think about a mother in the very beginning, um, in, the, in the zero to, so there's two critical windows of brain development, which um, affect anxiety, right? Which cause anxiety and are related to anxiety. You have the first critical window of brain development, which is zero to three. You have the second critical window of brain development, which is nine to 25 or adolescence. So you have two windows in which you can have an impact in terms of helping to grow the prefrontal cortex or the emotion regulating part of the brain, right? And um, so what mothers do uh, or primary attachment figures do in zero to three is they basically regulate the emotions for the baby. Babies cannot regulate their own emotions, which is why babies will become distressed and cry and go from what we say zero to 60 in three seconds with their emotions. They cannot regulate the highs and the lows of their emotions. It is, it's mothers who do it for them. It's like being on dialysis. It's like when your kidneys don't work, but you have to go on a dialysis machine. 
Um, but eventually what happens is through the mother soothing the baby from moment to moment in those, those first three years, basically emotionally regulating outside the baby, the baby then internalizes the ability to regulate their own emotions. And this happens in zero to three. Um, funny enough, it happens again in adolescence to a certain degree, not to the same degree as zero to three, but you do have another window of opportunity as a parent in adolescence to help to shape this emotional regulating part of the brain. Therapy actually affects that part of the brain. So what becomes more active is that part of the brain through therapy. You can actually see that, do that the, the prefrontal cortex is quite dormant in people with depression and anxiety. Um, it actually becomes very active again. The connections, what we call synaptogenesis. So there's three kinds of um, uh, brain, develop brain development that happen. One is neurogenesis, which is a lot of that happens in utero and in the first three years. So we say 85% of the right brain or the um, emotional regulating part of the brain is developed. So the mass of the brain, 85% of the mass of the brain is developed by three. Mm. The rest of the mass of the brain is developed by 10. Mm. So the mass of an adult brain is fully developed by 10 but 85% is developed by three. So if there's any argument for why that's the most impressionable period mm -hmm. of development, that you need to be there the most, I mean, I can't think of anything more impressionable than telling people 85% of your child's brain is developed in the first three years, and if you're not there, who's helping to develop that part of the brain? It doesn't develop on its own. But okay, so then what happens is there's an overproduction of cells, and then there's a pruning that goes on, sort of like topiary. You know how you cut bushes, you overgrow them so you can cut them in the shapes you want them. So there's a pruning of the excess cells that, that adolescents don't need. Um, and this starts to happen in adolescence, a pruning, and then an increase in connection, what we call synaptogenesis, an increase in connection between neurons, which is really what the development is about in adolescence. There's sort of a uh, a, a pruning and a reorganization of the brain, mm. which is why adolescence is so important. So you do have this period where you can impact your teenager's emotional regulation again. Mm. So it's like uh, for, for so for teenagers, um, everything's there, but they're making the connections now. They're starting to apply right uh, what they've what they've learned as such and tidy it up and work out this goes there and that goes there well it's actually a very important period of it's what it's a period of what we call um asymmetrical development because um they're what we call the reward centers and this is why teenagers get into a lot of trouble so people think oh it's hormones and oh it's puberty it does have something to do with puberty and it does have something to do with pubertal hormones, but it's actually much more to do with the neuroscience than, it, than people understand, the actually neurology of the, mm -hmm. of the brain, which is um, there is uh, excessive development of the reward centers of the brain, parts of the brain like the ventral striatum and the what we call the mesolimbic system. So the, the reward centers um, grow, become very active, um, we call the dopaminergic centers, where you produce dop dopamine in great quantities. These grow excessively in adolescence, right? Again, so it's all this disorganization and um, I want to say uh, asymmetry. So this grows excessively, but the prefrontal cortex hasn't fully grown. Remember, that part of the brain is the emotion regulating part of the brain. So you have this kind of lag in development where the part of the brain that regulates things like reward, um, or 
taking risks. It's why teenagers take risks. It's why they make bad decisions. And then eventually the prefrontal cortex catches up. So what we want to do in adolescence to help our teenagers not to be depressed, not to be anxious, not to take too many risks. They're going to take some risks. In fact, some risks are healthy for adolescents to take. They would never leave. They would never learn. They would never take on novelty situations. So nature made it so adolescents could be more risk takers. But as parents, we have the ability to help regulate the, the parts of them that are missing. We serve a function, um, which is we help to regulate them when they can't regulate themselves in those years. And how, how is it, is this, speaking of someone whose um, daughter was quite stressed last night as a teenager, um, it's very difficult to see how par- what parents can actually do in that time. You know, baby, you pick them up and hug them. But with teenagers, there's a lot of pushing away going on. And you're saying that the parents can help or mothers can help regulate the emotions. But what does that look like? How? So <laughs> How it's it's what we call helping your teenager to mentalize. Um, it's not really that different than what you do with younger children. You just have more barriers, um, meaning what you do with younger children is you use your imagination. Ad- adults have the ability to mentalize, which is use their imagination to imagine another person's state of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, I, I'm going to say some adults. <laughs> we would hope most adults, yeah. but actually there's quite a number of adults that I treat as a psychoanalyst who don't have the ability to mentalize, mm-hmm. where it's it's actually developmentally something didn't happen developmentally for them. Um, so may, they may be empathically impaired or they may not be able to imagine other people's states mm. of mind or other people's feelings um, or that other people could feel um, differently than themselves. Um, I mean, without sounding too American and maybe putting down our president, I think our president often is... is um, charged with not being able to imagine other people's states of mind. So not all adults have the ability to mentalize, but if you're an emotionally healthy adult, you have the ability to imagine another person's state and then put it into words. So when I say to parents of younger children, when you say, I wonder if you see your child comes home sad from school and you don't know why, um, if you say to your child, why are you sad? They probably will not be able to ask, answer that question. Some may, you know, but probably most don't. I always say take that question why out of your vocabulary because it's not a question that most adults can answer. If I asked adults in my um, consult room, why are you doing what you're doing? They wouldn't be able to tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, I mentalize with them. I say, I wonder if you are sad because... Um, your friends didn't pick you on the soccer team, or I wonder if you're sad because I know you took a test today and did that make you sad? And it's knowing them, it's knowledge of another person and then using our imagination to think about them and their experiences that allows us to reach them and help them process. You do the same thing with adolescents. So I'm going to say as much knowledge as you have of them, as much knowledge as they let you have of them, Mm. use that knowledge to wonder about them and help them wonder about their emotions. So in, in, in essence, you're helping them to think about their feelings, processing. Mm. Mm. It's, like, yeah. it's like replacing a part of the brain that doesn't exist yet. It's like, it's like the dialysis all over again. It's, it's the dialysis of early childhood, but it's a little later. Mm. Yeah. If, um, but just sticking with that, before mm. we go back to anxiety, because it's a very recent example, if I'm the cause of why she's so upset... Because <laughs> it's something I've done. Yeah. I know exactly why she's cross, but I would still do that again. 
so so um, in terms of helping her to regulate her emotions, um, it's, I think she was scared of her own emotions because she was so upset about what had gone on. Uh, well, it's then it's it's yeah. accepting responsibility as a mm. parent, which also parents who are healthy can do. And maybe if you didn't have a parent who could accept responsibility, you know, there are parents who can never say they're sorry or never say they're wrong or, right? It's very healthy to be, be able to say you're wrong or you're sorry. And if you're not wrong, you can still be sorry that they're feeling so upset at you. And I think reflecting what we call reflection or mirroring of feelings. So from a very young age, children have the capacity, they have mirror neurons, they have the capacity to look at another person and copy their emotions. Yeah. As adults, if we're healthy enough, we can look at our children and also mirror their emotions. And even if we're the source of their anger or their sadness, we can still be with them, reflect how they're feeling and um, and accept our responsibility in that. It's very important. It's also very important, particularly for adolescents who are so, from about eight years old on, fairness becomes a real justice, fairness, um, equity. You know, why can you do this and I can't do this? And, um, you know, they cheat at games but when they're younger, but then at about eight, they become very intensely aware of fairness and righteousness. And um, we say they're super egos or they're their inner parental voice is very rigid, very stiff, like a pair of new Italian shoes that you haven't worn in. So fairness and justice. And I think if you, as a parent, are secure enough, when you do something or say something, you take responsibility for it. And you say, I'm sorry, and I was wrong. Or, and that really can reach your adolescence more than anything, mm. because they're so into justice. And in fact, they're so into justice and fairness that they get into sort of idealizing and um, how should I put it, um, getting into causes and, and social justice issues. Greta Thun mm -hmm. Thun Thunberg, I always pronounce her name wrong, Thun Thunberg. Um, she's a good example of that. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, moving um, on, I want to, I'll come back to anxiety yeah. causes, but in terms of um, understanding what someone else is going through, if you're, if someone's uh, child's having an anxiety attack, what would you expect to be happening in them? Because someone who's not uh, experiencing that with them, it might seem irrational mm -hmm. that they are responding very strongly to this stimulus that you think is not really an issue. So um, what would an anxiety attack look like and how can people help in that situation? Again, think of the brain on stress as the fight or flight response um, in an extreme. Um, um, and so, you know, sometimes anxiety attacks for teenagers look like um, insomnia. They can't sleep. Sometimes they sweat like adults will sweat in those situations. Um, sometimes their hearts will race. Um, so, I mean, they have many of the same symptoms as adults in terms of panic attacks and anxiety attacks. I would say one of the, um, one of the, uh, most common symptoms in children is, is not being able to sleep, um, and, uh, and obsessional thinking. Um, so, you know, the same things that adults feel, adolescents feel in terms of an excessive response to the fight or flight. So if you think of fight or flight, it is really literally, they can also become very aggressive. Um, so it's either aggression and lashing out real emotional dysregulation, um, and distractibility and 
kind of getting up and feeling manic. And these are things that we do instinctually to cope with the stress. Mm. And, and we say that it's interesting because cortisol, which causes that mm-hmm. response, excessive amounts of cortisol are supposed to be an, a human adaptive hormone. It's supposed to help us to cope with stress. It's not a bad, we think of cortisol as a bad hormone. It's not, it's actually an adaptive hormone. In small amounts, it, it's on a circuit and it helps us to cope with the stress, get through it, and then there's a shutoff valve or a shutoff switch in our brains that allows the cortisol to be shut down. So it's sort of in this negative feedback loop, it's supposed to be helpful to us to help to motivate a response that helps us to get through it. The problem with a panic attack or an anxiety attack is it's like that light switch in the kitchen left on and it, it's like the switch is broken and we can't turn it off. Mm-hmm. So what I, I remember a friend telling me that her daughter went through a phase of um, anxiety attacks about going to school mm-hmm. uh, and she was very, you know, she'd be crying, saying, don't make me go. And uh, in the end, they just time just passed and she sort of got, got over it. You know, they tried lots of different strategies. But what is it that's making um, someone respond like that, you know, whereas someone else won't respond like that. And I don't think anything particularly bad was going on at school. I think she just had herself worked up that this was a bad thing to be doing. It depends on whether it's academic, academic pressure, or or if it has to do with social pressure. So again, going back to neuroscience, because again, people think of children as little adults, but they're really not many adults at all. They really have a completely different brain structure than us. And I think it's really hard sometimes as adults to relate to them or remember what it was like to be one of them um, because we project onto them. We kind of adult demorphize. We project onto them who we are and how we behave and how we deal with things. They behave with very differently and respond very differently. So self-consciousness or hyper-alertness to social situations is something that happens more in girls than boys um, and has to do with brain development, again, because the amygdala in girls is very active, um, even more active than boys. So they're very, but it's very much connected in girls to social alertness, meaning they're very sensitive to um, facial cues, meaning of their peers, meaning, you know, I'll give you a very concrete example. You know, if one of their peers makes a face or rolls their eyes or whereas an adult might go, oh, well, you know, that person's not very nice and who who gives a darn about them? Um, Because their prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain, that, that emotion regulating part of the brain is not developed, they can't do what we do. But they're also hyper alert to things that we are not so alert to. Meaning when you get into adulthood, that part of the brain sort of calms down a little. But but girls in particular are very socially aware, which makes social media a disaster mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of brain development and what it exacerbates. So these aren't parts of the brain. I mean, they, they have adaptive parts, meaning the social awareness has evolutionary d- adaptive parts. But for the most part, when it's hyper alert, we, you know, it, it can cause many issues. And so things like social media or a social situation in a school where you're, you're rejected or not included in a group um, is devastating. It's considered a major adversity for an adolescent. Whereas for an adult, they may not relate to it because they may say, well, the people at work, 
they don't really include me in their parties, but I don't care. Mm. That's because the part of their brain that regulates other emotions is working, right? Mm. So for them, it's, so it could be social, uh, a school phobia. It could be the academic pressure, which we're putting on our children. So I wouldn't conclude that it's due to nothing. I would Mm -hmm. actually say it actually has a lot to do with everything. And then you need to figure out as a parent what it actually has to do with. Mm -hmm. So if you dismiss it and disregard it as, oh, there's nothing wrong at school that would give her a school phobia. In fact, there is. Mm -hmm. It just is, it's, um, it's exacerbated, whatever's going on is exacerbated in an adolescent's mind. So it's your job as a parent to help figure out what that minutia is that is drawing her to this conclusion um, that to an adult may seem unrealistic, but to her Mm. is very real, Mm. which is either her social situation is out of control and devastating um, or her academics are terrifying to Mm. her and the expectations on her are terrifying. And uh, we'll come back to social media, but in terms of the... uh this sort of day-to-day in the moment mm-hmm. when someone's getting very nervous. And I will, I'll will i give this example of um, someone I know, so a youngish boy who gets very nervous before um, hockey matches mm-hmm. because he plays in defence and he's just got himself into a state that he, you know, the parents can see why he's like that because he feels responsible if the ball gets past him that he can rationalise it. Uh, everyone knows what's going on, but but... You know, the parents feel that, you know, you can just rationalise it and don't don't get too upset and have a strategy for coping with it. But but in the moment when that boy is really, really upset and crying and saying, don't make me play, what would work? Because the brain isn't working logically. You can't say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. It isn't working. No, it isn't no. working. Mm. So what can you do to calm to calm someone? What do you do? Do you say, OK, well, don't play or do you because you want to get them out there? What do you do? Well, you don't go to don't play right away. You try a few steps before that. So, um, you know, I think in the old days, parents, you know, again, parents had a very tough love approach because they weren't very psychological, to be honest. I mean, I think we've learned so much in the last 50 years about um, adolescence because, you know, there wasn't even a category of Mm. adolescence. Um, It was considered a part of adulthood or a part of childhood at a certain point, but more a part of adulthood. And and so adolescents were considered mini adults. And it wasn't until 50, 75 years that we really identified as a separate category unto itself. So, you know, the first thing we know is that when you dismiss another person's emotions, you exacerbate those emotions. You make them louder and more irritable. Um, whereas when you acknowledge emotions and you reflect them, it's like putting ice on a burn. So I guess the analogy would be putting a heating pad on a burn to mm-hmm. dismiss their emotions. Do you, mm-hmm. Would you ever put a heating pad on a burn? And probably mm-hmm. the answer would be no. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd put ice on a burn. So ice on a burn is acknowledging and recognizing someone's emotions as not being crazy, but just being their emotions. Once you acknowledge those emotions, so that kid who's afraid of playing hockey to say, I can see you're nervous today. I can see you're afraid of playing today. Um, First acknowledging and then exploring, right? So your role as a parent is to process. So if we talk about what processing means, it's first acknowledging feelings and then it's exploring feelings, asking clarifying questions, you know, what is it about hockey today that that is, you know, that might be making you feel 
more nervous than other days? Is it because, and there you mentalize, is it because it's a big game? Is it because you didn't get much sleep last night? Is it because you help them process their emotions? And then at the end, you know, so the reassurance and the um, filling in for that regulating part of their brain can't come first. It's got to come at the end of a process. And then you can reassure them and say, you know, well, you know, and problem solve. Well, you know, if you're out there on the ice and, you know, you're um, having a hard time, you know, maybe you can use some of those um, those techniques that we've worked on, like, you know, imagining good things happening instead of bad. But you can't do that up front. You have mm-hmm. to acknowledge the feelings first. And um, you can do things in the end, like just reassuring and saying, I know you'll be great. And but you don't want to do that first. Mm-hmm. So the reassurance has to come at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole process, if you slow it down in slow motion, is what the brain does later in adulthood. It does it for itself, right? If it's healthy, it it acknowledges emotions. It it rationalizes why you shouldn't be feeling. I mean, you're going through the process, but you're doing it with them because mm-hmm. they can't do it for themselves. So what I say to parents is acknowledge feelings. Then you can ask clarifying questions. Then you can problem solve. Then you can reassure. So that would be the order of things. Mm-hmm. Most parents will not remember that I said that, but I'll do it. I'll say it again. <laughs> First, acknowledge emotions. Yeah. Then ask clarifying questions. Then help to problem solve. Then reassure them. Mm. That would be the order of helping them with anxious experiences. And if you get to the point where they still won't do it, (laughs) what what do you do at that stage? So, I mean, there are real experiences that are too much for children. Mm. So again, the idea that we force them into experiences that overwhelm them, um, you know, we don't want to abandon them. We do want to have faith and their ability to conquer some of their fears. Mm. Um, That is about building resilience in children. But we don't want to push them past their limits. Um, You know, and and again, if I think of the analogy, yeah, if I think of the analogy of what the analogy I use is growing pains. Um, Brain development in adolescence that contributes, the brain development asymmetry, which contributes to things like anxiety, in in uh, in growing pains, the bones grow much faster than the soft tissue, you know, and so that's why your teenager will say, "My legs hurt, my legs hurt," because the bones are actually pulling at the ligaments and the tendons, right? Until the tendons and the ligaments catch up in development. Would you ever encourage a child who's going through growing pains to stretch, put their legs over their head, and stretch them, and <laughs> you'll snap their tendons, right? Mm-hmm. So. There's a reality here, which is there are some things they may not be able to do. And so for you not to be disappointed in them and to give them the authority to be able to, and the choice to be able to choose what they can do and can't do. And sometimes they just can't do things. Um, you know, I'll give you a very personal example. My In America, we have like A levels, O levels, but we have something called SATs which are college entrance exams. And one of my sons, um, you know, studied very hard, took the exam once, um, decided to take it one more time. And this son, you know, really struggles with uh, standardized tests and it makes him very anxious. Um, And he took it a second time and he did well. I mean, I guess, you know, he did well and he did, I, I would say he did quite well, but his peers were doing better, right? So here's this, all this pressure. 
And we just looked at him and said, do you want to take it again? And he said, no, it will make me too anxious. And that's the son of a therapist who says, it will make me too anxious, mom. I don't want to take it again. I'm willing to sit with the whatever I have. Mm-hmm. And so that's health. We gave him, now, if we were less healthy parents, um, we would say, oh, you have to take it again. You're not going to get into it. You know, you have, must take it. Um, pushing against, mm-hmm. um, it would be like stretching his ligaments and tendons past the point that he could stretch. Mm-hmm. And then he would snap. Mm. Instead, we left it to him and he was able to say, no, I have my limits. These are my limits. And I'm willing to, as they say in blackjack, I'm willing <laughs> to hold. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as parents, we have to be able to accept the limitations of our children. I, that's, um, that reminds me of, I think it was Anthony Selden, who was head of uh, Provost of Eton College, mm. I think, saying that... Um, you know, that there are children that you could put in a situation, they'll get straight nines now, GCSEs nines, but at what cost to their mental health? Mm-hmm. You know, that, and I think there's, when my um, daughter started primary school, because we could never pay for private, I thought, well, she'll probably achieve 80% of what she might have done in private, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. And I think in a society, there's this whole, you know, be the best you can be and, achieve all your dreams and everything and I wonder whether that's behind some of the anxiety if you think you know a sense of that'll do you know I've done my best and that's good enough rather than always reach for the stars and you can be number one and you can be celebrity is the big thing at the moment yeah I mean I think if the message was be the best you can be as an individual but don't push yourself past what feels like a limit for you that's not the message so in fact it's 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 not be the best you can be, it's be the best. And those are very different messages. Mm. Um, those are different messages because we all have different abilities and different strengths and different, I mean, one of the things about adolescence, and this is more in an emotional framework, you know, I have two frameworks. I have a psychoanalytic framework, which doesn't include all this neuroscience. And then I have now kind of a neuroscience framework. And they, they really kind of very much um, have come together for me. I mean, we didn't have the neuroscience, but from an emotional framework, you'd say adolescents are, um, you know, developmentally not where we are um, as, as adults. And, but, but even as adults, we have to accept our limitations. So one of the developmental milestones of adolescence is to find your place in the adult world, accepting your limitations and admiring your own strengths, Mm. sort of embracing your strengths and accepting your limitations. I think a lot of adults don't do well with that, which is why they have anxiety and depression. So if we can teach our teenagers and our children at a young age um, going forward that um, they don't have to be the best, they they have to know what they're good at and what they're not good at. There's something, um, there are charter schools in New York, where I'm from, that specialize in what's called strength to strength. Um, They specialize in finding children's strengths early, not pushing the soft tissue to use my analogy so they snap, Um, not emphasizing their weaknesses, but, but fostering their strengths, getting the things that they're less good at up to minimum par, but not focusing on them, not criticizing them, and really focusing on strengths. Mm. So if you're not great at math, they don't say, oh, you must, 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 you know. They say, let's get you to a place with math that you don't feel inadequate. 
but let's focus on your writing, your creative writing. Or if you're better at math and not at English, they say, well, let's get you to a place where you can write an essay. But that may never be your thing. Let's let's focus on, you know, math is a creative, abstract thinking. You love it, numbers. You really... it's, it's the idea that we all have limits. And if we teach that to our children, they'll have much less anxiety. Um, and actually the ones who go, who leave adolescence without grasping their limitations, they're the ones that suffer from narcissism and narcissistic personality disorders or symptoms of narcissism like eating disorders or addictions or, um, or anxiety. Well, is narcissism excessive focus on the self? Or well, how would it, you define it? yeah, so it's actually, funny enough, it's deprivation of the self. Mm -hmm. So it's it's the lack of self-development that causes, um, it, think of it like um, developing defenses, but never developing the, the internal core of a person. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so, but but essentially a lot of the disorders we see, so in Freud's day, what we saw was a lot of what we call hysterical symptoms, right? So. As a Freudian analyst, if I were alive 120 years ago, what I would have seen, or 100 years ago, what I would have seen would have been um, women and men having hysterical blindness or um, uh, you know, other hysterical symptoms, somatic symptoms. That was very common in, in Freud's day. Repression of certain emotions caused like a rash of hysterical symptoms. What we see today in today's trending uh, are narcissistic symptoms, meaning addictions are disorders, narcissistic disorders, um, which are the absence of a healthy self. And in its absence, um, a kind of vacuum that is left. Mm -hmm. And that vacuum is guarded by, um, is protected by unhealthy defenses. And that's what we see in eating disorders. We see it in drug addiction. We see it in alcohol addiction. Um, what's what's leading to the rise in that? Lack of connection. So if we say that what happens in zero to three is connection, it's the connection between you and your primary attachment figure that um, I, I guess the analogy I would use is conventional ovens cook food from the outside in, whereas microwaves, I think, cook from the inside out. Right. So that's what they do. Mm -hmm. So really think of it as we want to cook our children if that's <laughs> a, from the inside. We want to build their core. Mm. I mean, I could think of a lot of analogies. I could think of like core training. You want to build your core first mm. and then build the layers on top. Mm -hmm. What we're doing when we don't make the early connections by being present enough for children in the beginning is we create what we call defensive independence, which is the shell around the emptiness of a lack of connection. So it really starts in the beginning when we either are absent, distracted, um, resentful uh, of the connection. Um, if nurturing is something that we, because of our own experiences of childhood and our own mothers, whether we feel you know depressed, distracted, um, resentful of the connection. We don't make the connection with our children. They don't, they don't form their core selves and self-esteem from the inside growing out. So instead they form defensive independence to cope with the fact that their mother doesn't want to connect or their primary attachment object. And, and then we have these external defenses, but no internal core. Mm. Yeah. And could that, um, happen in, 
not necessarily due to the mother not wanting to make the connection, but not having time to because they're not together enough. Or being depressed, uh-huh. a depressed mother mm. who may be very well-meaning. It's why things like postpartum depression are so critical to reach early because it's not that mothers are to blame for this. We have to help mothers to, to be better mothers because they needed to be mothered. I mean, mm. you can't expect a mother who is never mothered or connected with um, to easily mother her children um, or to not find it boring or obligatory or I mean I mean there's boring parts and obligatory parts to everything we do but for the most part when mothers find mothering of very young children boring that's a sign for me that there's postpartum depression and we want to reach those mothers early so they can um, heal themselves and make the connections with their children that are basically core training I mean I guess that's the (laughs) analogy I would use core training you have to develop children in that in those earliest days from the inside out um and if you as you say of no intention of your own um cannot connect with your child then they develop what we call narcissistic defenses or grandiose defenses or yeah yes and would that but would that also happen um even if the mother's been well mothered and she's very secure and happy and attached but is out at work all day (laughs) and so isn't actually physically present to connect with the child would that make a difference or would the time they are together be enough so what we say is that there's a moment-to-moment process in the beginning um, that this um, neurogenesis that I'm talking about um, is happening but also the um, the synaptogenesis, meaning the the electrical connections between neurons, which is what develops the brain, is very environmentally dependent. It's very dependent on their caregiver. You are their environment. So if they don't have that primary attachment figure to create that emotional security um, and foster these connections between their brain cells, basically the parts of their brain that create emotional stability, and um, they don't they don't form. And it is a moment-to-moment process. So what I say to parents is, um, you know, you can be there physically and be disconnected emotionally. You can't be connected emotionally if you're not there physically. So the truth is you need to be there physically as much as possible and emotionally to create that synaptogenesis, to create the connection between cells that develops the baby's brain. Mm. Mm -hmm. And going back to the narcissistic side, it Mm -hmm. sounds, what you were describing there about having a sort of external defence makes me think about social media, Mm. because you can put up whatever you want in terms of a defence. Is that aggravating an existing tendency amongst um, people who are already struggling with their core? Because they're they're very much judged externally on what what they're putting online. Well, again, I think for me, it, I, I can't not think of the brain development because there's a really, um, there's a lot of this kind of self-consciousness that goes into social media. I mean, social media is all about self-consciousness, isn't it? You know, the teenager who goes uh, to school with a pimple on their nose and says, all that people see is the pimple on my nose. I, I, there's an interesting kind of, there's some interesting research to show that Um, that what's happening in uh, childhood, early childhood, is that um, children see 
adults' faces in parts. You know, it's why babies clue into eyes. It's why if you have a baby being cared for by other caretakers, they're looking, they'll seek their mother's eyes because they, they take the face apart like a Picasso or a Brock painting. It's very interesting. As you get into adolescence, they're starting to put the face together as a whole, but they're still very facially oriented. They're still very fixed on faces. So when your teenager says to you, there's a pimple on my nose and everybody's looking at it, they're not wrong. Everybody <laughs> is looking at that pimple. I mean, it's true if you think about it. Like if I have a pimple mm -hmm. as an adult, you're looking at all of me and listening to me. And I mean, maybe you're focusing on my pimple, but I don't think that's what you're focusing on. But when you're a teenager, you're focusing on the pimple. So what social media does is it amplifies mm -hmm. the pimple on the nose. It amplifies imperfections. It amplifies um, the idea of social um, competitiveness. And, um, and there's a whole thing in adolescence, too, about inclusiveness and exclusiveness, um, which has to do with um, peer groups, right? So in order to separate from parents, adolescents need a peer group, right? So it used to be that they would form a group of friends, um, and it would be the popular group, or it would be the athletic group, or it would be the musical artistic group, or whatever, or the druggy group, or whatever. Um, but you'd have a group of friends. And that group would help you weather the storm of the world. So what's happening now because of social media is that kids are withdrawing from real group activity and hiding out in technology. And that's a problem. We say, Houston, there's a problem because there's no replacement for real contact with a real peer group. So the idea of sitting on your bed with five friends around you. Um, and to this day, one of the things I do as a parent of teenagers is I encourage, I do everything possible to get my kids to bring their friends over and hang out. I got a big TV. I um, cook. I bake cookies every single day <laughs> that they love. I have popcorn waiting. I have made it very conducive. I say, I'll leave. I'll go downstairs. You can have the... I make it so their friends want to come over and they have real contact with real mm -hmm. kids. Uh, flesh and blood kids, um, because what social media has done is it's exacerbated all the fears mm. of, um, so there's this terrible, just to give you an example, this terrible part of Instagram, you have Instagram here mm -hmm. in the UK, which is find my friends. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> this is, this is a disaster for mm -hmm. teenagers. So as an adult, do I care where my friends are? I love my friends. I don't really care if they're in London or New York or, you know, I mean, mm. but teenagers will look and find my friends mm. to see where their, where girls and boys are gathered, mm. particularly girls will look to see where girls are gathered together to see where they're excluded from. Mm. Mm. So it's, and it's all part of the brain development because the social brain is not fully developed. And so there's this intensified inability to reason with their mm. hysterical parts of the brain. So yeah, social media will exacerbate um, things like feeling included, feeling excluded, the imperfections that they have. Um, so these are all terrible aspects of social media, which just exacerbate um, things, irritate things that are already 
irritants for them. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the studies coming out in the, in the UK, I don't know if it's from the UK, a little while ago, said that um, they, you know, st- people still don't quite know what's going on with social media, which is why they're trying to get the companies here to give up the data to the psychologists to work out what's happening. But that it's exacerbating tendencies. So a girl who is quite confident and secure might go on social media and that's fine and she goes on and comes off um, and it doesn't harm her so much but someone who's already fragile and nervous and um, anxious it will um, uh, if she goes on social media it'll confirm why she should be so anxious um, do, you, do you think that's the case that it's it affects people differently well again if um, so I don't want to demonize social media what I want to say is if your child has a very secure peer group, has a very secure group of friends. So one of the first things we look for in terms of um, teenagers that have issues that have to be really dealt with are if they don't have a peer group, meaning Mm. if they're doing really well in school academically, but they're very isolated socially, that's, those are the kids we worry about the most. It's not that we don't worry about the kids who are doing poorly academically. That's certainly a sign or symptom of something. It might be a sign or symptom of depression. It might be a sign or symptom of a learning issue. And learning issues can contribute to anxiety and depression. So we don't want to ignore either if they're doing poorly, really poorly academically. And when I say poorly, I don't mean, I don't know if the grading system is the same in the UK, but Bs. Like in America, Mm -hmm. there's this rash of like, like parents going crazy because their children are getting Bs. I'm like, B means good. That's good. It means good enough. It's yeah. actually good. Um, but if they're not getting an A, there's something wrong with their child. So I mean, like if your kids' grades drop to Ds and Fs mm. and um, yeah, that's a sign of something. But another sign is if they don't have friends. Mm. So really social media is not as hard on the kids who have real flesh and blood friends that they get together with on a regular basis. It's hardest on the kids who don't have that peer group because they need the peer group to, it's like penguins uh, in the Antarctic. You know, if they don't huddle together in the storm, they don't survive, they freeze to death. It's the same with adolescents. If they don't have a group to huddle with, Mm. and again, the groups are different. It might be that they're the nerdy girl. It might be they're the popular girl. It may be that they're the girl who plays volleyball or some athletic sport, but they have a peer group that they huddle together with. Mm. Social media has caused isolation and separation. And so, and there's no replacement for huddling together physically, Mm. right? And so really that's the issue. So what you're saying is the popular girl probably has a huddle. She probably has a huddle of friends that she sees on a regular basis and social media is an addition to her group. But a lot of kids are using social media to replace a peer group and it's not a good replacement. Mm. So I worry much less about the kids on social media if they have a group that they huddle with Mm -hmm. um, on a regular basis. So one of the things as a parent I can say is get your kids to get their friends over and huddle with them at your house. Make your house a comfortable place to huddle. Um, And then social media won't be as toxic for your child. Mm -hmm. We had an interesting situation and my son's 11 and he's got an ex, we've, we've got an Xbox. Uh, and things like Fortnite, he doesn't play Fortnite so much mm-hmm. now, he's moved on mm-hmm. to some other games, but because they're so they're all networked, mm-hmm. he doesn't actually want people to come over because he can play with them better if they're on their own Xbox and he can talk to them. And I hear they're always chatting um, and I can hear him talking, but he doesn't actually want the games, with the way the games are set up, they're set up as individual 
games that you you play from you know you all need your own xbox and then you can play together it's a it's really interesting development that you said there's no point them coming over because i play better with them when they're somewhere else well so so what's interesting about interactive video games is they're very different than video games you play by yourself so when you're actually i worry much less about kids um when they are talking to their friends and interacting with their friends it's better you know we say it's better to have them there physically but they're still interacting with their friends some video games are very isolating and others are very interactive in terms of with peers. Um, and I'm much more comfortable with the games where they're interacting with their peers than if they're doing it in isolation. Well, 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 what's also interesting is that now they can all play on different games, but still talking. They yeah. say, oh, Blake was playing on this and he was playing on that. I yeah. said, well, how do you know? He said, oh, because we're all in a group chat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's, sort right. Of, it's a sort of hopeful sign in the way. You it know, is. It's almost like it's bottomed out the person on their own on the one game that now they they can talk to each other well there's some research to show so remember i said the reward centers of the brain are very um hyperactive in in teenagers and so what they've done is some research to show that video games um stimulate the reward centers of the brain like cocaine does or drugs do um like sugar does same reward centers and what we know is that um when teenagers or adolescents are, stim- that part of their brain is stimulated, it has a very intense effect on their brain because there's no emotional regulating part to their brain. So there's no balance yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they can't control kind of the, um, the, the surges. They have like surges of dopamine. So that Fortnite game makes their brains light up like Christmas, that part of their brain. Um, and without any ballast in the boat, the boat tips over kind of thing. What happens as they go along, if you, you know, if you sort of are not too hysterical and you can ride it out with them, um, then often what happens is the, the parts of their brain that regulate gr- grow and become more active. And then the reward centers kind of calm down. And so what you'll see is towards 18, 19, 20, those games, even sometimes before, those games become less things like gambling and high risk taking and drugs, and they become less important to them than earlier on. Um, sort of the, the window is like 14 to 18 is probably the, the highest, 14 to 19 is the, are the big surges, the really mm. big surges. Um, and then it sort of calms down. So what may be happening is your son's coming through the tunnel. He's mm. coming out. I think. Well, I think he just got bored of Fortnite, and, and yeah. because his friends weren't playing it yeah. either, he like he prefers to play it if someone else is on it. He doesn't like to play it on his own. So time just because he's only eleven, time yeah. just sort of passed. Yeah. And uh, you know something else came up. Yeah. Um, with uh, I, I, I want to test one little theory that I sometimes say to my daughter that you know all your friends are also. 13 and 14 and they're much more self-obsessed mm. <laughs> than interested in you so so I tried to say to her you know if they've slightly blanked you they probably haven't even noticed because they're all obsessing about themselves and what does everyone think about me um is that is that the case or are they actually as you're saying they are noticing people's faces is it is it that everyone is in their own bubble where they are so important that other people are just peripheral well, they are egocentric. I think that's what you're trying to say to your daughter. They're egocentric, but they're also very highly alerted to um, things like facial features and social cues and facial cues and 
um, almost hysterically so. <laughs> um, so she's not wrong. Yeah. I, I, I think that's what, you know, so even though as adults we say, oh, they're not really, you know, caring about you. In fact, they're very highly attuned to one another. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, I'm guessing it, it's like, the, I've never done it, but I'm guessing it's what I hear about, like, ecstasy or LSD, what it feels like to be on those drugs, which is you're highly attuned to your environment. They, you know, like, like, um, dropping acid, you were completely highly attuned to your environment. Mm -hmm. That's the way they feel. Mm -hmm. Um, so it is a different experience. So maybe instead of telling her, uh, or telling your child, um, that they're not focused, ask her what her experience is. Let her describe her experience to you and say that must be hard mm. to feel that everybody is, um, you know, is is looking at you or is caring about what you do. That must be really hard. Mm -hmm. And that will bring her off the edge, um, more, or off the ledge, we say, more than um, if you tell her people aren't looking at her because that's dismissing her experience. Mm -hmm. And I would say I'm not sure she's wrong. Yeah. Interestingly. <laughs> to change that, that yeah, logic. Yeah, I'm not sure she's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, but, you know, yeah. they can get through it. It's not like they can't yes. survive it. You can say it's really yeah. hard at your age because everybody is so attuned to everybody mm. else and what everybody else is doing. You can say to her, I'll give you some hopeful mm. uh, thoughts, which is that everybody outgrows this. Mm. But right now I know it's a really hard time for you. But that, and probably it was a hard time for me too when I was your age. But you do kind of, everybody gets to a point where they go, that doesn't matter anymore. But yeah. I understand that you're not there yet. Yes. And your yeah. friends aren't there yet. Yeah. Well, she's quite close to that because she has, she's raised her bar for what she expects from someone who she's going to be friends with. Right. You know, in the whole, some people should say, oh, well, she's a cool girl and I don't hang out with the cool girls. So, so she's sort of worked out her, her level in life. That's it. Yeah, that's that's I mean, that's health, actually. Working at our level in life is mm. health, actually. Mm. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. 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 Good. Um, think about anxiety generally. Mm. Is it actually in the on the increase or are people just recognizing signs a bit more and not dismissing it as much? No, it's definitely on the increase. Um, you know, there are some things in life where we're just more observant, but they, it's definitely increased. Um, mm. It's increased because environmental factors mm -hmm. are, 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 I mean, life is more stressful for everyone. So you'd say because life is more stressful um, for teenagers, let's think of the stresses for teenagers. There's many more high expectations today because of intense competition academically, socially, um, as you say, social media puts kind of intense expectations on them of living an ideal um, magazine lifestyle kind of thing. Um, so just the, the intensity of the environment, the intensity of the competition, the intensity of the expectations that we have of them mean that they just live in a more stressful world. Um, climate change, you know, that they hear, um, that the, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling quite literally, you know, like, um, the world's going to end and, um, and remember, because they don't have the, so I hear about climate change and I get worried, but my prefrontal cortex is very functioning and says, well, there are things we can do about it. And it helps me with my, what we call executive functioning to problem solve. And maybe I can buy light bulbs that are a different light bulb. Maybe I can buy an electric car. I can reason with myself. So for them, when they hear, so, you know, in a way, all of the hysteria um, in the world um, is 
is amplified in their brains. Um, so this is all environmental. So to say there's a lot of environmental stuff that is mm. much worse than when we were growing up, okay? Mm. That means that you have to have even more resilience than you had to have in our day. And where does resilience come from? So I, you know, again, I'm also very aware that I'm probably talking to parents of teenagers. And if I say this to you, it's not to make you feel like it's the end of the world, but you know, if you have friends who have very young children, pass it on. <laughs> Those first three years are a very critical period of development for the foundation of resilience to stress. Emotional security is the foundation for stress resilience. Mm -hmm. And you need even more of your feet planted on the ground in a world that is always moving and shaking and rocking. Um, it's the ballast in the boat, emotional security. So again, if you didn't get to it when they were zero to three, you can get to it now if they're teenagers and therapy gets to it now. So actually treatment for anxiety that is not cognitive behavioral, I'm gonna say that again, <laughs> not cognitive Do you behavioral. Not like the uh, CB, is it CBT? Right. Yeah. Now, funny enough, CBT therapy does have some impact on children, uh, particularly adolescents, because they cannot go very deep with their emotions. So the idea is to get a therapist who can talk to them about their feelings and try to get them to talk about their feelings. And if they can't talk about their feelings, do some behavioral work with them to help them with their anxiety. But if you go to a purely CBT person, so what I say is go to a psychodynamic person who can talk about feelings, who has a wider range of treating children, and then who can also do things like mindfulness training and meditation and um, visualization. And these are all good things, but in breathing. And, um, but you don't want someone who's exclusive to that because they don't have as wide a range. So I still prefer to send teenagers to psychoanalysts who have a broader range or psychotherapists who then also with teenagers are very interactive and can do some behavioral techniques if they need to. Um, and so, yeah, I would say therapy helps. Mm. And I'm hearing stories more because we're more conscious of anxiety of children who've had very good backgrounds. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been, parents have been very involved with them. They've always been there, but then issues are developing later. They're mm -hmm. still becoming anxious as teenagers. Um, what would you say is behind that? Because they've got the resilience from the naught to three, but it's like it's being over, overridden. <laughs> so we say the, what happens in zero to three provides the foundation, right? What happens in life, what we call adversity, and adversity can come in many shapes and sizes and flavors, right? We know that adversity for a child can be a divorce. They may have had a very loving and attached mother. There can be a divorce. There can be a death in the family. There can be an ill parent. There can be moving schools. There can be moving house. There can be um, uh, some stressful event in the family, um, even just conflict in a marriage. Um, and I would say probably the biggest adversity for a teenager is um, social adversity. If they don't make it over the hump of acceptance into that huddle group that I talked about, the penguins all huddling together, if they don't find their place, um, and some teenagers really struggle to find a group to huddle with, um, then um, 
then that's considered a great adversity. So we say you need to have the stress resilience and the emotional security from the beginning so you can deal with the adversities to come. But sometimes the adversities are so great. Um, poverty is a great adversity mm. or financial difficulties. I mean, I could go on and on. So if, mm. if, if the life between three and 11, because we say it's nine to 11, let's say three and nine. So that's only six mm. years. If there's a great deal of adversity and adversity in adolescence in terms of social exclusion or a learning issue, learning disability is considered an adversity. These are all things that kind of think about them um, kind of dinging, uh, damaging the emotional security. Um, so you can still be anxious, even if you have the emotional security, but the emotional security at the beginning gives you a lot of the resilience to cope. So what I say to parents is, if you think your child is anxious with that emotional security you gave them, imagine if you hadn't given them, <laughs> that's what we don't think of. Yeah. Imagine if they hadn't had that foundation, how intense the anxiety mm. would be. Yeah. Mm. And uh, um, with mothers, so if anxiety is increasing, yeah. uh, you hear about mental health in mothers as well. And uh, where, where is the anxiety coming in for parents? Because they have got the regulation and they can, you know, talk about, talk to themselves, you know, my child isn't necessarily going to die every time they go out of the house or whatever it is. Uh, what is it that's going on to you? Or is there an increase in anxiety in mothers? And, and how mm -hmm. could they, what would you advise them so I never treat uh, a family without doing parent guidance. And so, in fact, I sometimes do exclusively parent guidance if, a ch if I get to the family early enough. And the idea is that um, an anxious parent, um, through the research it shows, produces an anxious child. So if, you're, if you know you suffer from anxiety or depression or, um, as you say, can't necessarily get control of your own emotions. I mean, the, the greatest legacy we pass on to our children and our adolescents is our own ability to regulate our emotions. If we can't regulate our emotions, we can't teach them how to regulate theirs. Um, and so um, if you know that you worry excessively and it keeps you up at night and you don't sleep well and, um, and you find yourself projecting a lot of that anxiety, even just to remember I said that adolescents are very tuned into facial expressions. So an anxious parent's face, even though the words that come out of their mouth is really, <laughs> it's fine, but their face is anxious. Um, they pick up on those cues in ways that most adults would not. Mm. So um, yeah, if you're anxious, go and get help for yourself, you'll be a better parent to your child if you're less anxious. Mm. Mm. Yes, and uh, so there's a, an increase really across society. In just tremendous, a tremendous yeah. increase, yeah. Mm. And what do you think would help to reduce that? <laughs> so I think, you know, I, I talk a lot about um, policies that need to change to support families to... Um, be with their children in the very early days. Um, so it reduces anxiety for the children. I'm gonna say that this early separation that we do with mothers and babies also causes mothers a great deal of anxiety. Either the mothers become schizoid, which is they shut down emotionally, in which case they can't actually connect with their child when they get back together with them which is the root of postpartum depression. So they either become very detached emotionally from their children. Um, 
and begin to resent and see their children as an obligation. So, you know, when you hear a mother talk about, oh, I come home from work and oh, I just I can't stand having to, you know, something's happened where mm. that mother has not been excited to see her child, but is really almost has a disgust response mm. to caring for her child. Um, so it can cause that kind of detachment, but it can also cause extreme anxiety and obsessiveness um, in mothers. So I think when we separate mothers and babies early on, we don't just do damage to babies, we do damage to the mothers too. And it's contributing to more postpartum depression. So if we say that mothers who feel a pressure uh, from families, spouses to go back to work very early and leave their babies and feel that internal conflict. It often contributes to postpartum depression. So not separating mothers and babies early, having more early diagnosis of postpartum depression, which is now in America as much as up to 30 or 40 percent of the population okay. that are having babies, mm-hmm. um, and then more mental health treatment. Because mm-hmm. remember I said that uh, in a way access to mental health services, access to therapy is brain altering. There's two other really critical pieces of the um, anxiety equation, which, um, so there's really four things that impact um, anxiety and helping the regulation parts of the brain to grow. One is parental or adult involvement to help process emotions. That basically grows that part of the brain that is the emotion regulating part of the brain. Um, Psychotherapy grows the emotion regulating part of the brain. As I said, it it actually stimulates the prefrontal cortex and the emotion regulating parts of the brain. Two other things to keep in mind as a parent are exercise. Exercise actually has an inverse relationship with cortisol in terms of what it produces in the brain. It actually helps the emotional regulation parts of the brain to grow. Um, So, you know, as much exercise or team sports or individual sports or so the idea of asking your teenager to go for a run with you um, or play tennis with you or play basketball with you. I don't know if people play basketball no, here. I think they do. Or the soccer dog. with you or Trying walk to get my the dog. To walk the dog with me. Or run the dog. Yes, or, yeah. um, but the idea of actually physical exercise, just like it does in adults, it actually mitigates stress hormones, which mm-hmm. cause anxiety. Um, and last but not least is sleep deprivation contributes to anxiety and depression. And what we've done in... The Western world is we have very early school start times. So there's mm-hmm. something called sleep phase delay in adolescence, which is between the ages of 12, 11 to 12, um, probably around 12 years of age, adolescents uh, go to sleep by worldwide, go to sleep by 9.30 is their sleep time, usually maybe 9.30, 10. By the time they're about 13, 14, they have a two-hour delay in sleep. And people Mm -hmm. say, oh, it's because of homework and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It's not because of homework. Um, It's because their melatonin shifts. So they actually actually are um, not sleepy for two hours later than, Mm -hmm. than earlier in adolescence. And what that means is they actually go to sleep later. So everybody who has an adolescent understands that Mm -hmm. instead of going to sleep at 9.30, now their teenagers go to sleep at 11.30 and they Mm -hmm. want to wake up later in the morning, but we wake them up very early to go to school and school start times in America are as early as 7.30 Mm -hmm. to 8.30, right? So what happens is they're not actually getting enough sleep. They're actually sleep deprived and they're actually biological reasons that they don't actually uh, get the melatonin um, 
kind of shift that we get. They don't get it for two hours later. Mm -hmm. And so that sleep phase delay means that they still need the eight and a half to nine and a half hours of sleep, but they're not getting it. Mm-hmm. And they can't actually, what's called sleep pressure, they can't actually fall asleep at 9.30 or 10 anymore because the, the pressure to fall asleep that's based on the melatonin isn't there mm-hmm. until 11.30, 12 o'clock at night. If you're going to bed at 12 and you're getting up at 6.30, you're only getting six and a half hours of sleep. So really what should happen in society if we want to shift is we should have later school times mm-hmm. uh, for adolescents because then it shifts back at some point. I mean, I'm 55 years old and I love going to sleep at <laughs> 9.30 or 10 o'clock, yeah. but um, it shifts yeah. back. But in adolescence, they're actually, most adolescents in the Western world are sleep deprived because mm-hmm. of um, this biological shift that happens that impacts when they can fall asleep. And then we don't let them wake up when mm. they need to wake mm. up. So that's another factor. They do have some schools in the UK that run like that, that they start later in the day. Um, but you're also talking about Western world, but we sometimes host um, Chinese students and we've traveled to Taiwan. We have some friends out there and they, th- their they, story they have the trouble. problem too. They yeah, have the they same work. problem. They're not just awake, they're working yeah. till midnight and they're getting up at six. That's right. And they are- They're sleep deprived. Yes. Yeah. And their culture is amazing because they're taught not to question. They're right. taught to just absorb their, uh, you know, very little edu- um, exercise. Yeah. It's a really, it's amazing to me. I wonder if anyone's really studying what's going on yeah. in, in China. Because- less sleep, less exercise, more yeah. depression, and they have more suicide mm-hmm. So in, in adolescence. So, you know, um, the idea of, you know, you push your kids to go to sleep at an earlier time, but actually pushing your child to go to sleep at an earlier time only causes anxiety mm. in that child because what happens is then they can't fall asleep and then they're mm. fearful that they can't fall asleep and they're not getting enough sleep. And so in a way, it is better to let them fall asleep in their own time, mm. but it's also better to let them wake up in their own time. And we don't do that mm. in the Western world. Um, and, and you're saying in China too, and mm. I think that's right. In some Asian countries also, mm. Um, but yeah, so if we, if I were going to say what's an ideal start time, I would say probably no earlier than nine o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. Uh, and would be much better if we started at nine. So right now in America, we start at eight Mm -hmm. and we end at three 30. Um, it would be better to start at nine and end at four 30 for adolescents. Mm. Well, that's what, yeah, my daughter's secondary school, they start quarter to nine. Yeah. So it's, it's not too bad. But then I think the other issue with the teenagers wanting to go to sleep later is what are they doing in that time? And presumably, they're, quite often their parents have wanted to go to sleep already. Are they on their screens uh, right. in their bedrooms? And then you talk about blue light. So, you know, mm. I always encourage my kids for an hour before, and adults who have sleep issues, an hour before sleep to turn off computers and technology because of the blue light, which disrupts sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know that there's a lot of things that disrupt sleep for adults. Alcohol disrupts sleep. When we drink alcohol, even a glass of wine a night disrupts mm-hmm. sleep, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for an adolescent, if we um, just t- teach them at a very early age to get off their technology an hour before sleep, we're okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's enough time to sort of it's, wind down. It's enough time. Yeah. And uh, do something else. And in terms of exercise, talking in a very utilitarian way, how many minutes do they need to, <laughs> how long do they, uh, you know, how, what would make a difference? What would be the entry point of exercise that would make a difference to someone's mental health? You know, believe it or not, 20 minutes of aerobics a day. Mm-hmm. 
a run or running the dog or, um, you know, playing a sport or that's why I say as a parent, you know, going outside and shooting basketball hoops with your child or kicking a soccer ball around or playing tennis mm -hmm. um, or, you know, anything, going for a run with your mm -hmm. with your teenager um, or encouraging them to do it on their own or with their peers, you know, giving them incentive to do it. The other thing I didn't talk about is you know, you can incentivize them. Um, teenagers are very responsive to incentives because of that reward center of the brain. Mm -hmm. They're particularly responsive to positive reinforcement, not negative reinforcement. Mm -hmm. They're very averse and their brains have a very averse reaction to negative reinforcement or punishment. Mm -hmm. They have a very positive reaction because of that reward circuitry being on high alert to positive reinforcement. That means money incentives, mm -hmm. Candy, sugar, believe it or not, these incentives um, are um, incredibly powerful to them. So, you know, believe it or not, if you pay them to exercise, yeah. if you tell them you'll give them $5 or the equivalent of four pounds or three pounds every time they go for a run during the week, and that adds to their, you know, chore money that you give them, mm. um, that goes a long way. Mm. in terms of incentivizing them, did, bribe them with money yes. is actually the, um, bribe them with money or sugar uh, is actually the, the idea. Well, mm. that's the, yes, I start, I've started doing that with my daughter. I set up a range of um, sort of pay per, pay per mile type thing that that's if it. she walked all the way home from school, I'd give her some money. That's and it. If she did an after school club, I'd give her some money. Because I think, well, it's all, it all comes out in the wash. By the time she wants to buy a car, we're going to have to give her some money for it anyway. So the right. more money she can save up in the meantime. Right. Uh, I mean, it depends what she spends it on, I suppose, but... Yeah, it, sa it sounds very wrong. My father wouldn't approve, you know. He said, just get them to, just make them do it. No, but, um, but it's actually, again, I'm basing this on the neuroscience of it. So they've done mm -hmm. fMRIs to show how teenagers respond to incent positive incentivizing, like money, in terms of their reward circuits lighting up, um, mm. even more than adults do. So if I said to you, I'll give you $5 for every run, it wouldn't do a darn thing for you. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. But if I say to my teenager, I'll give you $5 every time yeah. you go for a run, even if it's three times a week, now I'm giving you $15 just for going for a run. Yeah. Um, yeah, it has an incredible impact on the brain. So we know now that your father was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I'm looking at outsourcing that reward because my daughter's training is a referee oh. and so she'll get paid as a uh -huh. football referee and she'll be doing some exercise uh -huh. so I'm looking to bring in other people to pay her to exercise but I expect I'll need to be in there as well with yeah. the the funding yeah. well Erica thank you again thank, thank you, you for all the, the practical thank advice you. and I think my daughter will be particularly pleased with the uh, the funding <laughs> the funding idea my son's not so he's more he's more motivated by crisps uh -huh. At the moment, I think funding might come into it. Chris, the packet of crisps will do it. That, that, that works. Well, that might offset the quality of the exercise if I'm constantly giving him Whatever works, whatever works. Yeah. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion all about anxiety with Erica. I was delighted to catch her because she was only in the UK for a week and um, I was delighted to be able to speak with her about it. If, like me, you're unable to retain any information for more than a nanosecond, I thought I'd remind you about those four 
point that she said about helping people with anxiety. I thought I'd do that because I was trying to explain it to my husband this morning and immediately forgot. Anyway, if your child is uh, suffering with an anxiety attack or feeling anxious, she said, number one, that we should acknowledge their feelings and their emotions. Number two, to ask clarifying questions to help them understand what it is that's making them feel that way and help us understand. Uh, number three, problem solve, find out strategies to help them through the next few minutes or whatever it is they need to keep them going. And number four, reassure them that uh, they'll be fine and uh, that they will be able to make a good job of whatever it is they're trying to do. So um, those are, I think those are really helpful steps to consider. I'd like to remind you again about Erica's book. It's called Being There, Why Prioritising Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And when you read that book and listen to what she says about anxiety... It does seem ridiculous that in the UK and in many other countries, uh, the government prioritises getting mothers out of the home and into the workplace rather than supporting them with um, financially at home if that's their choice. Being able to give mothers a choice whether to stay at home to care for their children or not is surely absolutely fundamental when you look at the difference that it can make to the brain development of a child. And there's all this chatting goes on about, wow, well, there's so much anxiety and depression in young people and older people now. And dear knows where has this come from? It must be social media. But actually, it's it's as though the answer to every question is never the mother. You know, the answer is, well, put them in childcare for longer. Well, give the mothers more money to go out to work. It seems to be that the answer of having a mother at home to care for their children is never going to be the right one in the government's eyes. Um Apparently in Finland, they're now looking at giving mothers a, quite a large sum of money. Well, it's very expensive to live in Finland, but quite a large sum of money to choose what to do with it, which is what um, I would suggest we need to do here. So to choose whether to spend it on childcare or choose whether to spend it supporting themselves while they and their families while they look after their children, because we know how important it is for children to be cared for by their mothers just in those first three years. But then also we've we've heard a lot today about teenagers and how important a role parents have in the lives of their teenagers, helping their teenagers to manage their emotions and the um, challenges that they face at school and uh, giving, giving parents the flexibility to take some time off to be with their teenagers has got to be a really good investment as well. Uh, finding out that adolescence starts at nine was a real eye-opener for me, actually, because of uh, my son being 11. I can now recognise some of the traits and understand a bit of what's going on. But yes, giving families the flexibility to give their children the care they need when they need it rather than trying to force everyone out into the workplace for monetary gain just seems to make an awful lot of sense for me so um, I hope that you uh, have understood that as well from the discussion today about anxiety. I'm Claire Pay, um, Mothers Matter podcast. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, or you can find me on Twitter at Podcast Mothers. And my email address is mothersmatter at outlook.com. Um, there is a, in the UK, there's a, a podcast, a radio program called Podcast Radio Hour. Uh, apparently, she welcomes Amanda Litherland, who runs it, welcomes suggestions of podcasts that people could hear. Many of the podcasts she features are um, run by the BBC or by big organisations. Anyway, um, if you 
think that this would be worth her listening to. The email is podcastradiohour at bbc.co.uk. Um, and I'd love it if you could give me a mention to her. And uh, if you have anything positive to say and can put it in a review, then that would be brilliant as well. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mothers Matter. Thank you to James Ede from Be Heard, who has done the audio production. And thank you to Mothers at Home Matter for all their support. If you have any positive comments, anything nice to say, please write to mothersmatter at outlook.com. If you feel it's really necessary, please send any constructive feedback to the same address, mothersmatter at outlook.com. And please do subscribe. I really, really would love it if you would subscribe. I'm hoping to do a number of very interesting interviews and to give a voice to mothers everywhere. My name is Claire Pay and you've been listening to the Mothers Matter podcast. Thank you.